0: Andy Bellin is a rebel, a maverick, and one of the most interesting guys I know. After dropping out of an astrophysics graduate program, he talked his way into a job at the Paris Review that he didn't really know how to do, and paid someone to do his actual work while he just hung around and learned by osmosis, blossoming into a great writer. Then he became something of a professional poker player and wrote the best-selling book Poker Nation, a high-stakes, low-life adventure into the heart of a gambling country. Ever heard of Molly Bloom? She was the inspiration for the film Molly's Game, starring Jessica Chastain and Idris Elba, among others. Andy was there and played in many of Molly's actual games. He's also a successful screenwriter and an all-around great guy. On a warm spring New York Thursday, I sat down with Andy to talk about his life and career. Happy listening. Andy Bellin, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I guess one thing I, I just want to start off by asking you is, uh, or just to introduce you, like you're a guy who's led a handful of careers, you're an almost astrophysicist. You were an editor at the Paris Review. You're a journalist. You wrote a book called Poker Nation, uh, and you're also a, a poker player. Um, what? Which of these careers have you enjoyed the most of the many that you've led and continue to lead?
1: Um I think to sort of say like the the career itself was more appealing than any other. I, I think this is so much more dependent on like where I was in my life. Mm. So when I look back at my career and all the, you know, I I just sort of aspired to finding a, a more public stage upon which to fail, and I just kept <laughs> trying to to do that over and over again. Um, a couple, I think the sort of perfect storm of events that led me to the Paris Review and the group of people that were there for that generation, um, it was like the greatest, you know, four years of my life. And it couldn't have shaped me better, couldn't have trained me better. Um, so, you know, that was incredibly satisfying. Poker was really interesting because when I started playing. High stakes poker, there were only a you know, a handful of people who had played a, a million hands of of poker in their lives, right? Mm. And they were all well known. It was the Doyle Brunsons and, and Stu Unger's and all of that. But for somebody like me who had played so much more poker than everybody else, and everybody was just diving in because the poker boom had just started and the fuse was lit by. Jim McManus's book and the fact that you know you could now put a, a lipstick cam and, and see people's cards. Yeah. Um so many people were playing, and I could not believe how bad most most players were back then. So right. when I would sit down at a table, I was a legit 60, 65% favorite. So it's funny, I, I had a friend who sort of kept my books for me early on when I was playing really high stakes in la and he was like there was like a period where I won 35 games in a row and it's like that's just unthinkable I mean that's like you know let's say I'm a 60% it's unthinkable now. favorite yeah yeah I mean it's just unthinkable um but then because of the rise of online poker and the fact that poker became so prevalent and this sort of salacious patina in which it was covered was no longer, um associated with the game and it came out of the basements and back rooms and into fancy people's homes mm. everybody started playing enough and you know poker doesn't take a very long time to get much better i mean you may not become extraordinary but you can go from bad to good in a couple of weeks um it it was like this this golden goldilocks period of like 7 8 months where i was winning everything and it was awesome. Um, <laughs> and then the wheels came off and people caught up and then I became sort of a you know a B plus C, C player. Like it was C's so got degrees Andy. Uh <laughs> I, I'll you know it it's funny now to to play and sort of have to remind myself to play well because it's also one of those things where um People become incredibly complacent with how good they've gotten, right? And it's like that's my game. Mm. And it's like somebody with a hinky golf swing. It's like, take the three months to like get that 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 like little hitch out of your swing and you'll become a better player. And most people don't do that. Mm. So most people are completely comfortable with like that's my game, it's got holes in it, but you know, I'll keep playing it. So, um, I have to remind myself to be a better poker player a lot these days, yeah. Uh, and re- sort of try and um, resurrect those feelings of like I'm surrounded by an all-powerful winning force kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So I suppose it depends why why you're playing. I mean, poker or what your goals are. Poker is sort of one of those things. I imagine I, I I don't personally play myself. It's like tennis where you can kind of play your whole life or golf. Yeah. Um, and some people are as you've said and alluded to very content with just sitting down and they they like playing the game it's a social thing they want to hang out with their friends you know guys you know guys will have friday night poker at at jim's house or whatever where they watch a football game and then play poker um and then there's other people who are really playing for the thrill and the competition so there probably are a handful of people who don't want to get better they
1: just like yeah they're they're they're, it. <laughs> they're there for the company they're there for the camaraderie it is it's very rare where you get a group of and it's still this way it's you know 90% guys there's an occasional woman who drifts through but you know guys of your demographic of your age of your income bracket um where you have an unencumbered period of time in which you can talk about anything right you can talk about you know your marriage, your divorce, your health problems. Like, yeah. You know, we it, it's funny because I've been playing in the same group with the same group of guys Give or Take for 30 years and where the games were filled with conversations about who we're dating and where we're traveling and the drugs mm. we're doing and the sort <laughs> of aspirational ideas of where our careers are heading and now we talk a lot about colonoscopies and you know you know <laughs> echocardiograms and things and um and it's funny because you'll mention something it's like oh jeez i just had that and it's like okay yeah. so now i now we're we're back in the the community of like minded you know uh, sufferers yeah so uh but it poker has been um well i wouldn't call it the sort of my favorite period of my life it was the most consistent um, entree to any aspect of a new environment that I had ever been exposed to. So, anytime I went somewhere new, anytime mm. I was in a new city or whatever, you can find a game and instantly become ingratiated into a community. And then now you've got a guy who's got your phone number and mm. like. It, it's the best, it, it, it was the best entree for me to Hollywood. You know, that's sort of how I got an agent and how I sort of have a, you know, a B list writer career is like just <laughs> You're modest. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I like poker was sort of a superpower. It was great.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> amazing how much it sounds like you can learn about. First of all, about a person, but about a city, about uh, a place, an industry, all these kinds of things just from sitting across a poker table. Because the business of poker, it sounds like, you know, is sort of figuring things out about people and then people share things about themselves and you're always constantly evaluating. Like, what better way to learn about something new than to sit down and play a game where you're constantly. Being evaluated and evaluating not just everyone around you, but like everything around you as well.
1: Yeah, the there there's a group of guys that we were in. You know, we were, we would go to different tournaments together, and it's really funny because you can take a, a random sampling of of people off the street and be like what's your experience on the Champs Elysees? And they'll be like, oh God, you know, the obelisk, or it's like, oh, that's right by the George Sank, or it's like, oh, you know, that's where the original Landeret was. And of my group, <laughs> everybody would be like, oh, the, you know, the aviation club. Like yeah. that's It was on the Champs Elysees where the, the French, you know, the, the big Parisian club was. And like, we all discovered the, you know, the hotels around there because they were across the street and were such right. degenerates that we couldn't like dare to take the metro somewhere so it's like (laughs) we needed to walk to the club yeah and thankfully it was in the middle of the best district you know in paris but like that's how how we as uh as sort of misfit poker players all found these little pockets and communities um in all these various cities like you know the uh, in australia the you know what was the cave casino and it's just like there were, it's, it's always the best um, for me, the best way to sort of get introduced into a place when I'm there for the first time.
0: Absolutely. On the subject of uh, learning things from the game, I guess one thing I want to ask you is, you know, what are some lessons from the poker table that you have applied to your life? Or what are some lessons, you know, uh, just from the game of poker that people can apply to their lives in general? I think you have an uncommon familiarity with the game. You played it over many years. Um, so not just, you know, if you're losing, get up and leave or when the chips are down, stick it out, that kind of thing. Um, but what are some things you really learned from the game that you've applied to other aspects of your life?
1: So, uh, when it was interesting when I, when I first wrote Poker Nation, um, and it was sort of a surprise, you know, big selling book. Um, I started and this is almost, you know, pre uh, this is way pre social media but almost pre email. <laughs> like <laughs> I would get letters in the mail yeah from random people who was like I found my grandson reading your book and I read your book and I don't play poker but it really helped me connect with either him or her or it's interesting that i took this aspect of what you were talking about and applied it to you know my marriage or something and there it despite um the sort of notorious origins of poker and the association with gambling and everything salacious contained within there is incredible life wisdom at the table mm. and like what so uh, it, it's funny because i I'm, I'm having the weird experience that my oldest son, Lucky, um, who's now ten, incredibly bright kid, and um, you know, in both good and bad ways, very similar to me, has started playing poker and is playing with his friends, and um, uh, has asked me to sort of teach him. And it's you know, part of me really wants him to excel at this, and then part of me is like, maybe you should learn Mandarin. Yeah, like maybe there's other <laughs> ways to spend your time. But there are circumstances at a poker table that present themselves that when you apply to your sort of infrastructure of your real life, you can learn a lot. And that, so for example, uh, I was playing a couple of weeks ago in LA, and not to get too deep in the sort of geeky woods. No, but, please, but, um, please get deep in the geeky woods. Um get into the forest. Um I was I was dealt a uh I was dealt a pair of eights and then the flop comes out uh eight jack ace and there's no flush draw on the board. And basically like it's as, as good as it gets for me. Right. Yep. Like anybody with an ace thinks their ace is great, like go, pray to God somebody's got an ace and a Jack and they're going to lose all their money. And I bet, and he raised, I called, I checked the turn was a blank and I checked and he bet and I moved all in and he snap called and he had pocket Jacks. So he had three Jacks. I had three eights and I lost, I don't know, X number of, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, or whatever. But I, I could not have played that hand better. So despite the result, I played the hand properly. So there are times when you're at the poker table and theoretically the idea is that you are supposed to, and this is you know, something that's discussed in every book, is that you are supposed to maximize profits and minimize losses. Sure. So if I have Ace Jack and you've got Ace Ten and it's an Ace Blank board, I have to figure out how much I can get from you. If you were willing to lose, you know, two grand on that hand and I only got a thousand from you, I didn't win. Uh, Yes, I won the thousand dollars, but I left money on the table and, in a sense, in that proposition, because, you know, in the infinite number of poker hands that are dealt, you're going to have Ace Jack and I'm going to have Ace Ten, and You know, the situation will be reversed and the question is who played the hand better? So even though we played the exact same hands and we played them against each other and you won one and I won one, the person who played it better, maximized uh, profits and minimized losses Mm. even though it was a break even scenario, won money. So you can go to a game and play perfect poker and lose $5,000. But somebody else given your hand will have lost ten thousand dollars, and as weird as it sounds, you have to then say to yourself, "Oh, I played really well." Yeah, and you can come home at you know after a a, a session of you know x number of hours and say, "Oh, I, I you know I won eighteen hundred dollars." But if you didn't maximize profits, you should have won three thousand dollars, and because it's an infinite game and there's Um, you know, the probability says you're going to be in that scenario again, like you are then a losing poker player because somebody else would have created a, a a more profitable situation so that instead of becoming so results oriented and particularly in a binary way of win and loss, Mm. um, you have to apply it to, to sort of what was the potential. So it's sort of, you know, for guys who are in, and this is a, you know, a very pokery conversation, but guys who are sort of like in marriages that are okay, yeah, but they're still in their marriage and like they are making it function, but they are not making it function as well as they can, or they're not accepting that this is like an unfortunate scenario. They're just sort of used to sort of cruising along and Mm. the idea that even in a scenario that is a win, like I'm still married you can make it better. Right. So there's a way to say like do not focus on the binary reality of like the box is checked and I'm still married yeah. as like something that's a successful notion like go do go do it better. Yeah. Um so these are these are things that I sort of try and apply to life that they're, you know, like that hand is is you know what we would call a cooler hand where you are designed to manifest destiny. When the cards were shuffled and dealt, you're going to lose all your money. Yeah, and you have to accept that as that is you know that that's why they gave you the batting helmet. Like occasionally a pitch is going to hit your head, but the the you know th- then the task for you becomes: can I not let that affect my play? And it's interesting because there's a phenomenon, there's a big chip phenomenon at poker where it's like you sit down, you win your first two hands. And now everybody else has got three thousand, and you've got eight thousand. It's like, oh, I'm a tough guy. I'll start betting and raising and making people uncomfortable because I can absorb their stacks. That's easy to do. Like anybody can can play, you know, big stack poker. It's like it's like having a first date in Venice. Like if you're not happy and getting laid, and it's not the time of your life, like it's you know, that's the easy part. It's like what happens when you come home is when things get difficult. So. You know if you get a cooler hand on your first hand and you've got you know five more hours to play poker and you're already a thousand dollars down or ten thousand dollars down however whatever stakes if you can remain composed and just feel like i'm starting the game fresh and not focus on that gnawing reality of i'm already a thousand dollars down yeah that's part of sort of being a successful poker player and it's also being a successful businessman of not mm. saying like shit I bought that stock at 40 it's now 20 it's like do you want that stock at 20 and instead of focusing on I'm you know I'm x number of dollars in the hole can you objectively evaluate the scenario so that your your actions are going to be dictated by the right amount of information that that is leading you to the proper decision yeah and it's really interesting you watch guys who play poker at my house You know, once, twice a week, four years. And this it's a phenomenon common at every poker table where players accelerate their aggression towards the end of the evening if they're down.
0: The whole phenomenon of being on tilt, so
1: to speak? Well, so being tilted is one thing, but these guys are trying to get even. Ah. They don't want to go home and say, I lost a hundred dollars. And the idea that Poker is an infinite game. Mm. And if you stop saying, Oh, I broke at this moment, right? Am I I won three thousand last week, but I'm down a hundred. And something in um in a very fragile ego says, I can't stand the idea that I've lost. Yeah. So you take risks that are unnecessary and unbeneficial and are unlikely to result in something profitable <laughs> just so you can walk home saying, like, oh no, no, I got even. It's like yeah. It's a hundred dollars, man. Like, Don't don't affect your play. And that becomes sort of a death cycle where you see these guys on the last round just start just pumping money. It's like... Even, right. right. And that happens in in tournament poker a lot, and there are a couple of guys, guys like Eric Seidel and Phil Ivey who recognize this phenomenon where if you're... uh, So in poker tournaments, basically, if they're a thousand dollars, they pay out... Uh, usually the top ten percent of the people, yeah, so a thousand players if you're if you're the eight hundred and ninety ninth person knocked out, you get zero if you're you know the nine hundredth person knocked out, you get your i don't know three thousand dollars back or seven hundred dollars back, so they announce like how many players are left, and when it gets close to the bubble that that moment where you're going to actually make the money, everybody in the room freezes. Nobody plays a hand, nobody wants to be the one who busts, and like being the bubble boy is absolutely the worst thing that can happen. You're the guy who stands up and it's like, had I just folded that hand? So the really good poker players start getting incredibly aggressive towards the bubble, knowing that everybody's only going to play their premium hands. Right. So there's so much money to be made in in tournament equity, by being aggressive towards the bubble because so many people are playing passively. Yeah. So and it's that whole thing of like, now look at your life. Like you flew to Vegas. The buy-in is seven hundred dollars. Like, is that seven hundred dollars going to make a difference to you? Because mm. if it isn't, like, then play your game because this is when everybody's playing tentatively. So it's also sort of trying to trying to take the ego out of I I made my money back. Yeah. As opposed to I am trying to win the tournament.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. I think of all the things you've just said what what sticks out to me the most is this concept of the infinite game. Poker is an infinite game and so is life. And a lot of times we get really hung up on the short-term wins and losses, uh, you, you know, within a day, within an hour, within whatever in our, you know, if, particularly with work and jobs and then relationships, career, you know, all, all all kinds of stuff. I think of um, this scene from a Bronx tale, a a film, if you're familiar with it. I am. And there's that, there's that famous scene where Sonny is, is talking to the kid. um, And it's, it's, I call it like the $20 scene. Um, The kid, I I forget the, the name of the character is all upset that, He's, he's loaned another person in the neighborhood $20. And every time he sees the guy, the guy refuses to pay him his $20 back. And he's talking with Sonny, who's his mentor. Um, and Sonny says, do you even like this guy? And the kid goes, no, I don't like him at all. And Sonny goes, great. You know, You've paid twenty dollars to to get some loser out of your life, to get this toxic guy out of your life. Um, that's that's the fee you paid, and now you're you're better off without this guy who brings nothing into your life. And so, there's this idea I think sometimes where we we can't stand the loss. We're we're, we're trying to, as you said, towards the end of the poker game. Break even, or, or or somehow make up for whatever it is that we think we've lost, but in reality, we you know we we didn't do that that badly, or we we've moved the needle a little bit. I mean, I you know experienced this when I was writing my my first book. Um, sometimes I would be kicking myself at the end of the day because I didn't get through as much writing as I wanted to, or because what I had wrote last night while drinking scotch that I thought was brilliant wasn't so brilliant when the sun came up. I hate it when that happens. Um you know it's know it's like feeling. the the uh the genius feeling that we have um sort of fades away with the darkness of the night and then we wake up and we realize, oh wow, this is trash. <laughs> I can't do anything with this. I've been like, there. Yeah.
1: Um, the 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 thing that you also have to recognize, and it's really weird to do the math of of poker um, in a really objective way, but I, I found this out early on in my poker career that um, there are very few profitable poker players out there. Right. And it's sort of the... The 1849 phenomenon, where it's like, what's what's the, yeah. the where the the 49ers would go out to strike it rich, and um, you know, the, the idea was that it really isn't the guys panning for gold in the river who get rich, mm. but it's the guys who sells sell the picks and shovels. Yeah, and those are the guys who are making money. Yeah. Everybody else is just a a sort of like a, a statistical underdog. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, some people strike it rich, but. For the most part, the money is being sucked out of the system. Yeah, and poker, whether you're playing at a, you know, at a VA or at a at a casino or online, there's always a rake. I, even in my home game, I don't rake. But could you define
0: we, what a rake is? For a, a rake uh-huh. is
1: is an X number of dollars that are taken out of uh, out of a pot. So mm-hmm. if you're playing, it's a home,
0: security measure.
1: You know, so the the. The dealer at the casino will either charge you time, so every hour they take five dollars from you, or if the pot is a hundred dollars, they take five dollars or whatever it is. So there's money; it's not a zero sum game, right? So it's a, it's a decreasing uh, sort of revenue that you are you're competing for. Mm. So it starts out with everybody buying in a thousand dollars. So there's you know supposedly nine thousand dollars at the table but everybody's given away $5 for the first half hour. And then, so now you're playing for $45 less and then there's less and less money on the table. So even in my poker game, we have a dealer and we tip the dealer and she ends up making, you know, $100 an hour basically. Mm. And so we play for five hours and basically everybody has handed in $50 to play poker for free. Right, right. For the for the convenience of not having to shuffle cards and worry about who's misstealing or anything. So n- to break even, you have to be a you know a five percent favorite, so that you know just looking at it mathematically, like you know most people at the table are going to lose money, right? And that's the phenomenon across poker, mm. and um, it's really interesting. But we were talking earlier about when when the pandemic happened and we finally figured out, my, my group of guys finally figured out after a couple of months a way to sort of resurrect our poker game on an app and then Zoom and sort of everybody was so happy to see each other and play. Um, and then all of these online uh, games started popping up and at first everybody was playing for free. And then a couple of people started figuring out like, oh, I'll just charge, you know, $20 to sit down. And a guy we knew, a pretty smart guy just said, I'm just going to start running a game every night and charging. I don't remember what it was, whether it was 20 or 40 or a hundred dollars to play. And he was kind of shocked that he was making a like a ton of money out of this. And he had said to me, well, you know, I, I, I'm happy this is going on. But he said, you know, it's in six months, this will be over. I said, why? And he was like, because I'm the big winner. Like, yeah. I don't play and I'm the big winner. Picks and shovels. So he's taking money out of the game. Resources are going to dry up. The game's going to go away. And it has, a, a, you know, a finite existence. Yeah. So that's where poker is very weird is that even when you're at a friendly game, whether you're playing for dinner or the the dealer or whatever, like it's very hard to be a profitable poker player.
0: Yeah, it's a good, I mean, I guess you have to accept that going in, it used to be the case in Formula One where, you know, there was that great movie Rush that came out and I think it was 2013, um, about the 1976 season on James Hunt and Nicky Lauda. There's another great book called, um, The Limit by Michael Cannell, a journalist mm-hmm. about Wolfgang von Tripps and some of those guys that were old, uh, Formula One drivers yeah, yeah. back in, in the sixties, um, and so uh, you know who these people are. So um, there, it, it used to be common knowledge that you know drivers would die every year. You would start off the season and then you'd have X number of drivers starting out. I don't remember how many it was back then, 25, maybe 30, or just between 20 and 30, I guess. Um, and some people wouldn't make it to the end of the season. They would perish personally i'm of the opinion and i'll say on the record that i would like death to be part of formula 1 again i think it's got we don't have to hash this out but i think it's gotten far too safe i think the technology has gotten too sophisticated you have the halos you know i liked it when the formula 1 drivers died because there was an element of thrill and glory to it um and there was an element of incurring risk—you are inherently incurring risk. I think also the driving was more pure back then. Now I think technology plays too big of a role in it. Who has the better car, um, or who has the more sophisticated suspension system? Um, that's sort of a, a a side note. the The point of this little diatribe that I'm making <laughs> is that all the drivers would start off at the beginning of the season. N- Knowing that some of them would die, that they may well die, and when you sit down at a poker table, I guess you have to accept that statistically you probably will lose money, because or you probably will. Yeah, you probably lose. lose money. You know, maybe you're advancing yourself in the infinite game. You're you play your hands as best you could, but not everybody can't walk away from the poker table. Up, it doesn't work like that statistically. It's it's. uh that's, it's not possible.
1: Yeah. So we I mean, we, the analogy is everybody thinks they're good in bed and, bad. Yeah. and um, you know, just anecdotally you'll again, I think the statistics are right on like 60% of poker players are losers and assume most, you know, 60% of people don't know what they're doing. So it's, um, it's a good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's funny bringing up the, the, Technology aspect, um, sort of in sports and poker, because the when technology started to infiltrate poker, when when you could start playing online, it seemed like this this almost like this emancipatory moment where all of the things that had prevented you from seeking out the game you loved so were suddenly taken mm-hmm. away, and you could find a game anytime you want it. And in the same way that the the sort of algorithmic manifest destiny of every sport ends up ruining it, where home runs and strikeouts have ruined baseball and the understanding that the three-point line is, is the only thing that matters in the NBA, not only do you sort of lose the individual... Uh, aspects of each team being interesting and each player being interesting, where there used to be NBA teams that were, um, you know, low post oriented or motion oriented. Like it's now all the exact same thing and it becomes iterative in a sense. Like the algorithms started collecting information on people's play in poker. And now there is what we have found out a sort of optimal strategy to play and in the same way like if you in the 80s when they first started the Senior PGA Tour, you go back and you'd watch these weird old golfers like Chi Chi Rodriguez and stuff. They used to tee the ball up like that high and they would all have these hinky swings because they were homemade swings that they made in their garage. And then you know the Phil Mickelsons came in, and then everybody learned the swing from the same DVD. Yeah. So then it it became everybody conformed to what was the most productive path. Um, a lot of the subtleties and individualities of poker play have become lost to the algorithm. So right. most people play very similarly. You have found an extraordinary benefit to aggression, and it's kind of taken a lot of the fun out of the game for me and, and also taken a lot of my advantage away.
0: You ever throw a wrench into the gears and do something you know you're not supposed to do just to fuck with someone?
1: Well, I mean, in a sense, that's optimal play, right? So that the expression is that there's you don't really lose money. You on can't a, play as a robot. Right. Mm. You don't lose money on a bluff because when you turn over your bluff, that is an advertisement for the idea that next time you bet with a winning hand, somebody should call you because- They've seen you bluff, Um, and the really good analytical poker players will say he raised in this position. You know, last time he did that, he had this cards. There was a caller behind him. He he made this ratio bet, and you can sort of pathologize through the actions like a a range of hands to put him on or her on. Um, And uh, a lot of that is now sort of baked into almost every player strategy. So being able to do something completely out of the ordinary is almost essential to not being a, a too predictable player.
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense. Another thing I want to dig into when we were talking about before is this concept of being able to win by losing. So this plays out at a few levels. On one level, you know, it's an infinite game. You're moving the needle. You may not have maximized your profits, but you minimized your losses. You played the hand as as well as you could. But another thing I guess people should keep in mind is that every person, it sounds like, I mean, this is your world, not mine, but it sounds like every person goes to the poker table um, with different intentions. Maybe not the guys you play with every week, um, but if you go to a new game you may not necessarily know immediately why people are there. Some guys, I'm sure particularly in the entertainment industry, just like hanging around celebrities. They're say I played poker with XYZ. Some guys might like, you know, the networking aspect of it. They are paying, they know that they're going to lose money. They set a cap on how much money they're going to lose, say $10,000 because they're a shit poker player. And they go there for the sole purpose of networking and making connections and they're like i've paid a ten thousand dollar fee for an introduction to xyz yep um xyz as they say in australia um other guys may go to the poker table as we said before because you know they're, they're not partial to the idea of a therapist, and they just want to chat with some strangers in a bar they'll never, see, they'll never see again. Other guys might go to the poker table because they're addicted to gambling. Other guys might go because they like the social aspect. I guess everyone, I mean, there's this, I'm interested in this idea of like, these some of these shrewd guys, I'm sure, and girls, will go to a poker table knowing that they're going to lose, but they've lost money, but they accomplished whatever their goal was, which perhaps meeting this person, um, who will be a good business contact for them. Or maybe they just were enamored with the idea of playing with, you know, I I played poker with this
1: famous person. Yeah. The, the, it's the same thing you were talking about from Bronx sale, the $20, like there are so many ancillary benefits to it. Whether it's the therapeutic process, whether it is the the sort of soothing of seeing other people of of your demographic um, ilk, you know, in similar situations, it's that sort of um, uh, Boston Commons sort of community ground of mm. like, let's all meet here and then sort of tell tales of our of our travels abroad. So there's a community aspect. There's a social aspect. There is a networking aspect. There is a star fucker aspect. There's a, there are so <laughs> <Star> many <fucker. laughs> reasons why uh, why people sit down. And the truth is that um, probably for for home poker games, eighty percent of it is not money. Right. And it's interesting because I, I've had this game that I've shared with a, a couple of people for I guess almost 30 years now. I keep thinking that. Um it's so stunning. And the like the only rule we have is like, you know, well, you know, be interesting and <laughs> uh and you're not there trying to make money. Right. Like you want to win. But you're not you're not grinding somebody. You're not trying to hurt somebody. You're not trying to make sure they can't you know pay their kids private school tuition. Like nobody wants anybody to get hurt. Yes, I want to beat them all, and you know there are a couple of guys who I love dearly who when they lose it, it brings me joy to the likes of which I cannot describe. Right. But um, the least important part of it for most of us is the idea of making money. Right. Like that's not what we're there. We're there for the therapy. We're there for the camaraderie. We're there for the um, the break from the, you know, the bliss of domestic life. Like we're 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 there for other reasons. Um, and I would say that everybody, ninety percent of the people at a at a poker table, even in Vegas, are ex- exercising some sort of demon. Whether they're punishing themselves, whether they're substituting, (laughs) uh, you know,
0: masochists at the table. Yeah,
1: sure. Like I deserve to lose. You see those guys? Can you tell um, when you sit down?
0: How quickly does it become apparent that this guy's here so he can meet investors? This guy's here because he's a masochist. This guy's here because you know he just had a fight with his wife. And this guy's here because he's, in your words, a star fucker. I like that word. It's a good word, um, but how quickly it, can but... you figure out um, people's game? You know, not not poker, but like what what their 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 motivations.
1: It it's pretty apparent. I mean, there are times when you're at a table and there's a you know, a guy who won't stop stop asking questions, and then there are guys who are are so clearly. Um, playing overly aggressively and it seems like they're determined to lose everything they have and that guy is, you know, punishing himself for being a shitty dad or, you know, doing whatever. whatever. Um it it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly. Mm. Um and that's I mean that's always been some of the more appealing aspects of poker is the sort of the psychological endeavors of everybody you're in contact with. Right. And it's it's Sort of my fa- my favorite part of the game, and I, there's a line in Poker Nation that like, uh, you know, the only thing stranger than a poker player is the guy sitting next to him, and that's always been, um, you know, my favorite aspect of it. Although, you know, in truth, is particularly at it like a table in Atlantic City or or Las Vegas, eighty percent of the people are there, boring as shit. So, you know, fair it's, enough. But. um you know watching somebody achieve their goal whether it is losing all their money whether it is um you know trying to just get out of the house and have somebody to talk to and listen listen to their stale, their tales of woe uh, it's it's absolutely fascinating
0: yeah i mean you mentioned in the games that you play and you know your one rule is you're not you're not playing to win you're not trying to you're not going out of your way to uh, hurt someone or to be mean, and perhaps you can't answer this question because you know some of these people or all of them. Um, but so I'm asking more generally, not about the specific circumstance. In the film Molly's Game, um, which I don't know how historically accurate it is. I haven't looked into it. Um, there's the, the the portrayal of one of the protagonists player X is that he gets off on fucking people, basically. Um, or there's that line, like I like to destroy people's lives. So without naming names or even talking about this particular circumstance, um, do you ever find in a poker game that there are like mean people who, you know, get off on like punishing other, they like, you know, hurting. They like to hurt.
1: So, uh, you know, Molly's game was a was a f- like a really fun period of my life for a very short period of time because that was sort of the golden age of poker in L.A. and everybody was playing and there hadn't been a third party that had taken out money from the game yet, so everybody was whole and healthy and happy and it was fun and. We were young and it was cool. And I mean, I, I don't want to sound shallow, but it was awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, and, you know, as to the specifics of the movie or whatever, like, you know, rule, rule one of fight clubs, you don't talk about fight club. But um, fair enough. <laughs> you know, there are people who show up at a poker table with an extraordinary chip on their shoulder. And the way they exercise that particular demon is you know the it's a, a very pernicious application of the idea of I can do this to you I am smart enough, I am powerful enough, I am cool enough, whatever it is right I can take that from you and there are people who um have accelerated that to you know to going hyperbolic which is just like like I want to take it all from you like, There are guys I have met who have seen people's lives fall apart because they've lost so much at poker and it brought them tremendous satisfaction that I can change that guy's life.
0: Uh, That sounds not very nice. Uh, there, it it's not, not right or wrong, black or white. It just is. You know, yeah. I don't
1: think it's very specific to poker. I think there's a Schadenfreude to all of us. And I, yeah. I don't remember if it was like Kurt Vonnegut or whoever said like it's not enough to succeed; you have to see your friends fail. <laughs> um, but you know, there was. It is. And it's not, not everyone plays like this
0: either. These no, are just it's, it's just a, something it's that you see in the same way that you see weird shit on the subway sometimes.
1: Like So I, I had written a, a movie a long time ago in two thousand nine about uh, about a young woman who was the victim of an internet predator and oh, um, uh, trust with yeah, 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 yeah and yeah. Catherine Keener and Viola Davis. And um I did a ton of research and met with a bunch of FBI guys and worked uh, with the Rape Treatment Center in in LA, and we were talking about the phenomenon of pedophilia. And what they had said to me was that you can take any one of these handful of jobs that gives you access to young people, whether it's a coach or a priest or a teacher or a camp counselor, whatever Jeez. it is, yeah. and Across the board, it is because you have put yourself in that position. It was something like 6% of those people are are sick. They have a disease and it didn't matter if it was a priest or a hockey coach. 6% of those people who have made the taken their life in a direction where they were exposed to children did so for nefarious reasons. Um, I don't think poker is uh, is, is more of a sort of den of thieves than any other of these hyper-competitive fields, whether it's finance or whatever. But I would say that it's probably 6% that there are 6% of the people there clinically detached enough to see success as somebody else's failure. Right. And I'm sure that's true in banking. I'm sure that's true in real estate. Um, so that I mean it, it's not it's not a phenomenon that is specifically reserved for poker players. It's can't you know my my gain is your loss and there are, are individuals who take that to you know an exponential degree to the point of I can take everything. Right.
0: Where is this six percent statistic from, by the way?
1: I don't remember where I got that, but I don't remember. If it was from the FBI or somebody gave me that statistic that it was something like it, you could go to any parish in in the world and six percent of the priests were pedophiles.
0: or camp counselors or anyone in in something like that under whose charge there are uh, or who is who's in charge of of children something um, like that. That's no, that makes sense. Um, and I don't, I don't, as you said, think that poker necessarily brings out things in people that aren't already there. Someone once told me, um, in another context, uh, this, this girl I think was talking about, um, her boyfriend had, you know, he would act like an idiot when he took drugs. Um, it was nothing like violent. Um, there was no like sexual violence or physical violence or anything like that. Um, but she's like, Oh, well it's just, uh, It's just because, you know, he was really high. Um, And my friend intervened and said, no, 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 no. Drugs don't make people do anything. You know, like drugs don't make people do things. People make people do things. It's not bringing out anything that's not already there. Now, of course, you know, you drop acid in the forest, you're going to start hallucinating. But I guess what I'm saying is that these behaviors. You, you shouldn't misattribute them to drugs or to poker or sure. to anything. It's it's the person at the end of the day. It's a, take personal responsibility and assign blame where where blame is due.
1: Yeah. So poker in that way is this sort of fabulous either kaleidoscope or, or litmus test where you know, whatever, I, I forgot, maybe it's the Balinese shadow puppets where, you know, you're not looking at the light, but the absence of light, like you're, it, it's a great way to find somebody's spirit animal, like whatever they yeah. are. Um, and it's, it's the same thing with, with alcohol or stress or, you know, w- like what, what really is beneath the, the surface. And a lot of the times the content of the character is completely absent.
0: Yeah, true. Um, True, and I mean to the extent that I can say it's true in other aspects of life. I can't say it's true because I've never played poker. Uh, (laughs) To be honest, Um, what do you have to say, Andy, on the subject of taking your beatings like a man?
1: Um, I'm not sure anybody gets great at uh, at failing, Um, but I would say, like. Accepting the fact that just statistically you are supposed to lose a lot of the times. And I've, I've, the sorry, I'm gonna really out myself for the nerd that I am, but um, (laughs) there was a great Star Trek, please, Star Trek episode where they they bring up, um, and actually it might have been a a movie, but they bring up the there's a test at Starfleet called the Kobayashi Maru, yeah. And it's basically, it's a scenario under which you cannot win. Yeah, you can't save the people and save the whatever. Yeah, yeah. and they're not actually trying to watch you problem solve. They're watching how you cope with the failure. Right. And famously, Kirk was the one guy who beat the Kobayashi Maru because he went in and reprogrammed it or whatever. But there are certain um, scenarios in poker at the poker table in life where it's a fate complete. You're you're done. You're going to lose. When it's your time to die, you die. Yeah. And um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't quite phrase it as taking it like a man. I would say, um, don't make it unproductive. Like right. so, uh, I I describe in Poker Nation as somebody going on tilt when they start just playing irrationally and over aggressively and trying to make up for money that they lost. Like it's not their money anymore; it's somebody else's money. Right. So you don't. You did not you're not losing now, it's just you have a smaller stack of chips, that's it. Um, going on tilt is like playing in a tennis game and being so angry at your right hand that you've decided to play with your left hand and swing as hard as you can at every ball. Like it's just not going to work. Um,
0: but it's so common.
1: Yeah. And, and it's, it's again, but then now you be, it becomes more of an a, a, like... Um, an esoteric sort of exploration of like why you're at the poker table because then you see the people who are punishing themselves. Right. Um, But so if you can have a cooler hand where you've got, you know, uh, the nut flush and somebody rivered a straight flush and you are a huge favorite, but this is going to happen to you. Like if Mm. you play enough poker, you're going to see every combination of cards and bad beats. If you have enough composure to just be calm and say, okay, that happened, now let me get back to my game, then that is actually a productive strategy that's going to put you in a position because everybody else at that table is going to take a bad beat. And if they go fucking bananas when they go, um, you know, on tilt and, and get a bad beat, then it's your advantage. You can take advantage of them. And if you don't do that, then there's the difference between maximizing profits and minimizing losses. Like any other person in that seat would now go ape shit and you don't so you have not you have minimized losses right so however you want to phrase it you know taking your being's like a man or whatever it is like if you can if you can separate the emotional reaction that is inherent in any one of these what what feels like cursed scenarios then you'll be a profitable player
0: yeah just for the for the record, I took that phraseology off of the product description for your book on Amazon, taking your beatings like I'm sure you didn't write that yourself or I don't know who I wrote probably that. Probably didn't, but I don't <laughs> um, know if it was it was written. But no, I mean t- t- the the phenomenon you've described and and sort of how to deal with it makes makes a lot of sense. Um have you ever Andy gotten up and just walked away from a poker game for XYZ reason? Like the people weren't pleasant to be around or it was a dangerous situation or whatever, don't need specifics.
1: Yes. Like not enjoying the company happens all the time. Dangerous situation happens infrequently, but certainly happens. Um, what,
0: with like firearms or something?
1: Uh, you know, the in the underground clubs in New York City, there were... A number of
0: unsavory unsavory
1: characters, and you know, they places had been robbed, people had gotten shot, like. So you're also playing with guys that are occasionally volatile enough that it may lead to something else. So yes, I've walked away from tables where I was like, don't want to be, don't want that person in my life, Mm. basically. Certainly have left, because it's boring, certainly have left a number of times where I did not feel like I could control the frustration from a bad beat. Yeah. so That
0: takes discipline, though. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's everything we've been discussing. Yeah. Playing on tilt, minimizing your losses. If you're not in a right head you wouldn't drive drunk, you shouldn't play on tilt if you know- Yeah.
1: And you know. if you can't control the tilt, then just get up and go and you'll- play tomorrow or the next day or whatever. So I I have done that many, many times. Yeah. Um. And also every once in a while, like each game has its own dynamic and its own feel and it's this sort of, um. you know, if, if you try and pathologize the, the mentality at the table, you can say, oh, that person is table captain and they're raising six, you know, six out of 10 hands and that person is a calling station and all this kind of stuff. I have sort of a sweet spot where I like to to drive a lot of the action. And if there's a guy who is dead set on just being table captain and he's three betting every time I raise or four betting my three bets and constantly putting me to a decision and he's got position on me, meaning like he's he's acting right after I am. Yeah. I'll get up and leave just because right. it's it's disadvantageous. Right. Um and unenjoyable. Yeah, there was a a friend of mine was telling me this story who's a a great guy, like one of the best poker players um, on earth, Um, Antonio Esfandiari, who's known as the magician. He's like one of the greatest players, but just an awesome guy. And he has played so much poker and made so much money and gotten so good at the game. Like there is no scenario under which he should be uncomfortable at the table. Yeah. And there's one player on earth, and I feel the exact same way about the guy, and I sort of like watched him go from somebody who didn't- What's
0: his name again, sorry?
1: Uh, who Antonio was playing. Uh, uh, or, or, uh, Anto- so Antonio play. was playing against a, another guy named Rick Solomon, mm-hmm. who um, like when I f- first started playing with him, I wouldn't play heads up with Rick because he was so bad and I didn't want to take his money, but I was, you know, helping- teach him you know this and that and he has become the most extraordinarily aggressive terrifying poker player on earth for cash um and like antonio (laughs) like saying he walked up to some you know million dollar buy-in and sat down and he just looked over and the person directly to his left who has the best position on him because he gets to see antonio act nine out of ten times or eight out of nine times depending on how many people are at the table was Rick mm. and he just kind of looked at the, somebody on the other side of Rick and was like I will just hand you $20,000 to switch seats with me yeah. like he was willing to eat $20,000 to just not have Rick have position on him right so there are uh, you know there's situations where it's just it's not to your advantage
0: yeah Andy I want to ask um, who enforces payment in these sort of scenarios if you're playing at an underground club in New York or la or where in Rome wherever you're playing uh, and you lose a bunch of money what's to stop you from just what nobody carries that much cash I, I don't imagine in their back pocket there's not enough room in your wallet for it um, what's to stop say you lose a bunch of money what why can't you just get on a plane home the next day or fly to France the next day. I mean, I know there are unsavory characters in in this world and perhaps they'll, they'll find you at your job or your home or perhaps your loved ones or friends or whatever. Um, but this, I mean, this isn't all like... And on the other hand of this, if you're playing with a bunch of guys and you don't pay what's owed... They probably won't, or not probably, they will not invite you back. Um, so, how this is all like a murky gray underground world.
1: How was payment enforced? So, most of the clubs, um, unless you were somebody who was known and known to have resources or whatever, you had to pay at the door basically. So, if you were buying 10 grand, like you need to walk in with 10 grand. Um, where it gets ah, so you can't. Lose more than, or I mean,
0: but people loan each other money at the yes, table and whatnot. Yes, of course.
1: And yes, there are a hundred terrible stories of guys skipping out on loans and things like that. But where it gets weird is in in really big home games where somebody will say like, oh, look, this is a friend of mine. You know, he played in the NFL. He's a great guy. Like, okay. And there were a couple of times at, at Molly's game where um, there were two or three two or three different times where somebody just simply said, uh, and it was funny because they, they couched it in sort of a justification of you guys were cheating me. It's like, no, we weren't. You just got unlucky or you're a bad player or whatever. But we uh, I remember one specific person who walked out on $60,000 and somebody else who walked out on something else. And the truth is like, what are we going to do about it? We're going to go beat up the guy like but that, I mean, that does
0: happen in some of these. Like you watch the movie Rounders, for example, like I mean, fiction, well, like uh, or maybe Brian, be careful about what table you sit. Yeah, down there. Uh, I,
1: I would say Brian Koppelman and David Levine had a, had probably the the greatest, most accurate depiction of New York poker. But that that was sort of underground clubs and stuff like that. But. Um, you know, for these big games, most of the time somebody walks out, you eat it. And right. it's funny, we had, um, like I said, I've had this poker game for 30 years, probably 200 people have come through, you know, from massage therapists to tax attorneys to international celebrities. And um, of all of these people, only one person ever uh, wouldn't pay us. And it was really interesting because we were all so shocked that it happened, that it finally happened to us. And it was not an extraordinary sum of money, it was like, I don't know, $5,000 or something. And at first he just disappeared. But I mean, he lives in New York and he's got a job and like, but he wouldn't go to any poker games. He dropped out of the fantasy football league and all this kind of stuff. Um, and it was really interesting because I called him and left him a message. And I said, look, man, how about I loan you the money and we figure out a way. So so you just pay me back over, let's say, three years. Yeah. Just pay me back. Didn't get an answer. Then I called him and I said, look, you, you know, of that five grand, you owe me two. I'll walk away from the two. You just pay everybody else because it's yeah. important that the game has integrity, not a phone call. And we ended up. Having to for the first time ever, like chop money out of the pot, rake the pot to pay everybody back over the course of a couple of months so that so that everybody shared uh, the the pain, basically. but It was a really shitty feeling and it was also- What was
0: his, was he going through a divorce or is, he moved, um, I don't know, what was his justification?
1: It there wasn't- Or did he never call back? Never, never got one. People have said that he's, you know, popped up at this poker game and that poker game. Was he a few screws or something? No, he was, he was just not, uh, I think he was just comfortable with, with being unscrupulous. Oh, oh, okay. And somebody basically said if it wasn't that hand- it. It would have been another. He was going to take as much money as he could out of the game and then walk away one day. Ah, yeah. Um, and it was interesting. There was like great justice in it because he had. <laughs> I mean, this is again deep in the nerdy. It was woods. a twenty
0: dollars situation. It, he wasn't a great guy to have around well, anyone. Absolutely, but also
1: yeah. um, he ended up winning a, a friend of ours fantasy football thing for like you know three thousand dollars, and we called him, and the guy gave us the money. <laughs> So that was there was a little bit of justice for it. That's kind of funny. Yeah, Andy, what do you say? I mean,
0: poker's poker's a great game. There's a lot, uh, a lot you can learn from it. It's a lot of fun. There's also, I mean, I was asking. Not, I don't want to get too hung up on the negative aspects of this, um, but you know, I'm sure you've seen, or you probably don't enjoy playing with this person because they're not very good anyway, or they I wouldn't imagine they are. But what do you say the guy who's, you know, walking in there, maybe he's drunk, maybe he's not like gambling with not just his money, but his wife's money and his kid's college fund and XYZ, someone who really can't help themselves and who's not just endangering their own Welfare, but is is basically playing with other people's money, um, like a a person who's truly addicted to to gambling. In Australia, you know, um, there's pokies machines everywhere, and all the bars they're they're like slot machines, and I see guys sitting in the poke. I don't play them, but you see guys they just they can't help themselves. Two in the morning, smoking cigarettes. Um, so the the question being, um, poker is not always played for for the right reasons it's gambling in any form can be an addiction. I don't what what do you have to say about this?
1: Um it's you know it's not unlike any other substance which brings you pleasure who's sort of got inherent potential dangers in over use and and lack of moderation like there's it's it's funny because um, actually, I don't know this to be true, but I think it's true. but I, I tend to say things like, I know what I'm talking about, but um, nah. I think the, like the, are you an alcoholic question? Our questionnaire is, you know, like, has drinking affected your reputation? Has it hurt somebody else? Has it caused you to lose uh, self-esteem? And I think they're the AA and GA, the Gamblers Anonymous, like they're the exact same questions. Yeah, um, just take out you know alcohol for gambling. Um, so when you see somebody in the throes of something, it's really awful. And right. we talk about it. Uh, we we had one friend who was playing a lot, and you know we actually asked him to stop playing because he was playing badly and he didn't have the money to lose. That he was losing, and we actually like had an intervention, and it was like sending in the same to way rehab. that you
0: would with with someone abusing any other kind of substance. Yeah,
1: it's very difficult to walk into a table in 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 Vegas and be like that guy's there punishing himself. That guy's you know spending his church money, but it, it happens all the time, and you try very hard not to be around it. Um, and although it is parasitic by nature, like you you don't want to be taking somebody's money. Yeah, you know when it's not theirs. There, there are all these stories of one of the Molly's games stories was um, a finance douche named um, God Brad. I can't remember any Brad. Anyway, Brad something. Oh,
0: from from the movie, the hedge fund guy. Yeah, this is, yeah.
1: Um, and Brad was. This is not his real name.
0: I, th- I, actually I don't think his it rate. was his real name. They called him Bad Brad in the movie. I and I think his name was Brad. Um, but any, anyway. Anyway,
1: yeah. I, I only played with him two or three times, but he was playing with his client's money. Yeah. And it was amazing because a special master was appointed to try and claw back where the money went. And all of a sudden, guys from our poker what's a special master? What a special it? master is somebody the court appoints to try and track down where all the mer- the Madoff money is. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. Madoff's boat gets sold, and his house gets sold, yeah, and yeah. he's got ten billion in debts. And they raised two million dollars. Yeah, they break it up up pennies on the dollar to to repay the the people whose money was stolen. And the special master found checks written by brad i'm almost sure his name was brad um, finance douche brad yeah finance douche um to (laughs) poker players yeah and those guys got phone calls from the special master saying you have to pay them back so no and ah
0: it's a difficult it's like art restitution you know
1: and these guys basically i mean some of them were like fuck you and but i i think most of them were like it's not worth the hassle right and ate the money and which sucks because had you know, let's say they won twenty grand at the table that night. You know, somebody else won forty. Brad paid this guy, and somebody else paid the other guy. The other guy's money's fine, and the person who B- Brad paid just has depends to pay. who paid out. Yeah, right. It's just bad luck.
0: What um, What makes a game legal? Or illegal. What was the crime of which Molly Bloom was accused and off of which the premise of the film is based?
1: So um, it is totally- It depends
0: on the state or the I I don't know. Yes.
1: Every state is different, but for the most part, um, poker is legal. Like I can have a poker game in my house and there's nobody kicking in the door. Where it becomes illegal in New York, and I think this is true in Los Angeles and, and in California and in other states, is- when there is a third party taking money out of um out of the pot that isn't playing in the game. So if you're so the charging, dealer,
0: this is the idea of a rake?
1: rake? Yep. So if you're raking, you're doing something illegal. And I think you can actually rake if you're playing in the game, but people like Molly weren't playing in the game, so that's what she was.
0: Are there player dealers?
1: There are not usually that- player dealers, but there are Host players, guys who are like, come to my house and
0: no, that's what I mean, like, pl- like someone who plays and deals at the same time. I'm no, sure. no,
1: like, so there will there will always be a dealer who's never playing the game. Yeah, um, it's it, the Mayfair Club was the last place that was sort of self-dealt. Um, Where's what's that? The Mayfair Club was the the club that was in Rounders. Oh that yeah. they called the Chester Field, I think, um, which was the the original poker um, club in New York city down in the twenties off park Avenue where I I first was exposed to poker. And it was
0: when you were like 20 something
1: or younger, late (laughs) late teens, early twenties. And it was glorious. It was just great. There was a poker poker game every night. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Um, is the idea, uh, I'm, I'm getting to the final few questions. (laughs) Um, but, uh, is the idea of a rounder sad or beautiful?
1: Wow, that's a good one. Um, so in the old days when when there there wasn't this maybe can,
0: define start out by defining what a rounder a rounder is for is
1: is a, is a poker player regular who makes the rounds and um, you know goes from game to game. And is a profitable enough player that he can beat the rake and makes a living off of playing poker. And I think before uh, there became a poker industrial complex that was sort of profiteering <laughs> off people's misery and going bankrupt and broke, um, it was there was something wildly romantic about the idea that you have a chosen profession that is an extraordinary skill because. Even though poker is becoming more and more algorithmic, there is art to this, there's reading people, there is gut feelings that are, you know, your spidey sense. Um, And I always found it incredibly romantic that if somebody, you know, Nixon financed his first uh, campaign through poker winnings from the Pacific, like (laughs) there were people who were good at this and made a living, honestly. And I, I always loved that. Um, and now that it has become corporatized and sponsored and all this kind of stuff, it's like any industry, it's so um it's so stacked against the little guy that when people tell me what they that they aspire to doing this, I'm like, dude, do anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, unless you're selling the the picks and the shovels, you're gonna get crushed.
0: That's a good metaphor. of mean returning returning to this sad beautiful analogy you think it i'm not asking i guess whether you'd suggest somebody become a rounder i don't think you would i don't think anyone um i don't think now anyway anyone would would tell an 18 year old kid you know who's asking what he should be when he grows up that you should be a rounder um where, where would you, where does this fall i mean it's not also a clear cut spectrum but being around or sad or beautiful
1: um in the old days it was beautiful um there was a romance to the lifestyle there was something aspirational towards to living um in a way that was not part of the sort of assembly line of of uh american manifest destiny of getting your you know three jobs and just sort of sticking with them your whole life um and i found it incredibly romantic i also found it you know there was ingenuity to it you had to um you had to find out where the games were because you couldn't just sort of log onto the computer and do it you had to find out that there was a game at this country club and then you had to get invited to it so you had to be likable and charming and there was wit and guile to this and it was there was something really magical about that back then and now it is, has become something else and it's funny that you say like what would i say to an 18 year old kid like I'm, I'm i've got a 10 year old and a seven year old who are interested in poker and i want them to be interested enough that they are good at the game but i don't want them to be interested enough that they would actually consider playing it regularly um that to me, would but you it, play regularly. I, I I play once a week, you know. But like their rounders play every night yeah. and um have a you know a, a return expectation of, of an hourly wage, like they can sit yeah. down at the end of the year and say, I made X number of dollars an hour. Right. Um, I would not, there's so many things that can go wrong, and so many better ways to spend your time, like it's. It's a fabulous game. It's an incredible entree to a lot of worlds. It's a skill that's got some roguish charm to it, like get good at it. Just don't spend your time getting great.